0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here as we are into the latter half of October 2021 well into the fall season now with days noticeably shorter and the sun setting much further to the south than it had been. It has moved far enough south that I can see it dropping below the horizon at least when the weather is conducive. Um, For much of the year it is setting behind Cruzoff Island and even further north than that but now you can watch it set from downtown Sitka, the bridge over to Japonski Island. You can watch it drop below the horizon at least when the weather is conducive, which it often isn't this time of year, but it's what I like to call the green flash season. I like to go look and see if I can catch a green flash as the sun drops when it is clear to the horizon. It's also a good time of year to be looking for unusual birds. We've had a couple of reports of mystery birds, but only brief looks and not a photo or a second look, so not quite sure what they might have been, but often this time of year we see vagrants showing up. So if you're seeing anything, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at com. Or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded this past week with Sarah Gravam. She is a postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University and joined me from Oregon as we spoke over the internet. I had met her briefly this past summer when she was in town doing some work on the sunflower sea stars. And there at least looks like a little bit of a partial recovery here after being significantly impacted by the sea star wasting disease a few years ago. She's been studying sea star wasting disease and the effect of the loss of these apex predators on the marine communities. So we'll go ahead and join the conversation with her giving a brief introduction of herself and go on from there.
1: My name is Sarah Gravam. I am a research scientist at Oregon State University um, down in Corvallis, Oregon. And I do research up in Sitka um, at least recently, and we're looking into the impacts of sunflower sea star declines on kelp forests.
0: Yeah, we met briefly this past summer while you were here. This is part of what prompted this conversation, and I had a chance to chat just very briefly with you and find out you were in part looking into the natural history of the sunflower stars, uh, which were formerly pretty common here, but in recent times, I've only found, you know, a handful a year and usually small ones that are only, you know, maybe six inches in diameter, as opposed to the, the big ones they used to find all the time. And so, yeah, I was really curious about that. And um, I was surprised to learn that not much apparently is known about their natural history or, or hasn't been.
1: At least not as much as we'd like. Um. So <clears throat> the Sunflower Sea Star is um, one of the largest and fastest sea stars on Earth. It has up to 24 arms. It can get the size of an extra large pizza. They're huge. If you've ever seen one, you won't forget it. It is, they're, they're very big. They have lots of arms. They move very fast. And they um, they just are something that seems like it's from another world. They are a top predator. So they eat sea urchins and clams and all sorts of other snails and things like that that they can catch on the seafloor. So they're that top predator in their ecosystem. And we think they have a positive effect on kelp because they eat those grazers of kelp and then thereby, you know, reduce reduce the pressure of the herbivores on the kelp, and so by being around and hunting, they seem to make kelp grow more easily.
0: So it was—I think it was 2014 when I remember somebody saying, "Oh, I mean, I'd been hearing about sea star wasting disease, but it had always been further south." And then, then I, I heard like, "Oh, it seems that it's hit Sitka." And I went out and looked. I remember going to one of the harbors here and looking. And I was like, because often you would you could see the sunflower stars uh below the the ramps, just in the in the not super shallow water, but uh shallow-ish water. And I was kind of looking and I didn't see any. And then I thought, oh, that's a funny looking rock there. But wait a minute, any rock in there should still be covered with algae and stuff. And then it's kind of purplish. And I was like, Oh, I wonder if that's just the pile of goo essentially and i think that's what it was There was a couple of them that was these these sunflower stars that had really just kind of i don't know dissolve isn't maybe quite the right word but just like broken down rather rapidly i guess uh, and they seemed particularly susceptible to it rather uh relative to other species that are around which also some were in, impacted but not to the degree it seemed that these were
1: yeah i mean it's a pretty grisly scene when a sea star dies from sea star wasting and um Dissolve is actually one of the words we used (laughs) Um, because it really just sort of, they disintegrate. The wasting disease began in central California and in the Puget Sound separately in 2013 and spread in both directions um, from both of those starting points and went really rapidly through California and made its way north up into Alaska in like 2014, 15, 16, and the sunflower sea star of all the sea stars was hit the hardest, um, at least we think. And I just did a study where we found that their global population declined by over 90%. And we think that almost 6 billion animals died. Um, from Mexico to the Aleutians. And so it's the biggest um, decline, disease-caused decline in that marine species that we know of. And those sunflower sea stars just got hammered um, compared to some of the many other species that were affected as well.
0: Wow. So their normal range would be to like Baja, California and Mexico or further south than that? Or is that kind of the southern...
1: Yep. Baja, California and Mexico. And then, uh, the Aleutians.
0: And I guess they, so, I mean, I found them intertidally. I'm not a diver of any sort, but I do remember, uh, they would come up in crab pots and stuff when I was a kid. So I guess they can go into fairly deep water as well. Is there a sense of how, you know, what their, their depth range is?
1: Yeah. Um, that was actually part of the study. They historically were really common from, you know, low intertidal, um, so the lowest low tide areas down to about um, 50 meters, so you know 150 feet or so, and they uh, are present down to like 400 meters, I think. But you pretty rare once you hit that like 100 meter mark.
0: Yeah, <laughs> quite a quite a range of depths there. Is there a sense of like? So I'm seeing these little ones and i guess i i'm curious like i don't have any sense i, I it is my understanding that there are a few places that that weren't as impacted in southeast alaska for example and so like starfish have a planktonic stage maybe uh it, the, their whole natural history but um and so they could drift around and settle out and and colonize places that had been where they had been extirpated essentially by this disease um it, this is my guess uh, uh and and but then like how fast are they growing like do you have any of this sort of baseline understanding of of their life cycle and and growth and reproduction
1: one of the biggest problems we've had with trying to figure out how bad this uh disease really is for the sunflower sea stars we don't really know a lot of those fundamental questions about How far their larvae go and how fast they grow. Um, So that was actually one of the main reasons I was in Sitka this summer. Was they were pretty rare in the Sound from around 2014, 15 to last in 2020 or so, and so they weren't seeing hardly any. And then um, in February 2020, I got a report from a scientist at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz. Who was up there and found a bunch of babies just off the Sitka Sound Science Center and they were, you know, the size of a quarter. And so he said, this is the chance, right? You're seeing, we're seeing this like pulse of little babies that landed from who knows where. This is a really good opportunity to understand how fast they actually do grow. And how fast they, you know, become reproductive and how fast they become those extra large pizza-sized animals that have huge effects on their ecosystems. And so it seems like those ones that were a quarter back in, quarter-sized back in February 2020 are about the size of your hand now or a little smaller. And so that's, that's pretty good growth in a year and a half or so. They went from a couple centimeters to like 10 centimeters, 15 maybe. So they're growing pretty quick, which is great. And we think it takes them at least another, you know, five years to reach that big, big size that you'll see a big honker in a crab pot. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And we think they can live for like 50 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we definitely know they can live for 15 because they have uh, an animal in an aquarium in the Netherlands that has lived that long. But so we're thinking like uh, upwards of 25, but probably more like 50. Yeah, I remember talking with
0: somebody about uh, starfish, uh, not not the sunflower stars in particular. I think it was the um, ochre stars, the pisasters. Uh, and like I, one summer I worked as a tour guide kind of person and somebody's like, how old are these? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I asked somebody about it and he says, well, funny you should ask. It turns out that's a difficult question because it seems that they can they can grow and shrink over time depending on availability and, and those sorts of things. And so there's not really any easy way to age them. Uh, they could live a, a super long time. Obviously, there's things that kill them in the environment. But a, apart from that, you know, they could be really long lived.
1: Right. And their, their size really has pretty – it's pretty disentangled from its age, right? So you can have an animal – two animals that are the same size and one is three times older than the other because one grew fast and one grew slow. So they're they're really very dependent on what food they get. And like you said, they can actually shrink.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different different sort of life. And I guess it's easy to, to sort of take for granted the kind of pattern that I know from, from being a mammal and, and observing other mammals primarily, but also fish, I guess, vertebrates maybe more generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not everything needs to follow that that life plan. So kind of fascinating to get a little bit of a window into, into this, some of these things.
1: Yeah. One of the interesting things, last year we got together and listed them as an endangered species through the International Union for the Conservation of Nature Red List. So IUCN Red List, it's like a international body that gives a barometer of of life, essentially, like how threatened things are. Um, so it's not tied to like law or anything, but it's more like a, a metric. And um, all of their questions were, how, how old is it at this size? How fast until it reproduces? Um, how long does it live? And and these were like the first four questions they asked. <laughs> and, and we were like, we don't, know. we don't know. We don't know. and And it was just really... I was taken aback by how how so many of how we assess an animal's status is very, you know, mammal or fish centric types of assumptions that we make about them. And um, a lot of animals without backbones live very differently than we do. And for example, they make, you know, millions of eggs a year and can release millions of babies. But so many die.
0: So these little ones would have settled out from that kind of broad. So they're broadcast spawning, I guess, is, is if I'm remembering the term correctly. Uh, yep. And then have this planktonic form. They're spreading around. They're settling out. Uh, presumably, they were a little smaller than the quarter size when they settled out, but maybe not so easy to see.
1: Oh, yeah. They're probably microscopic when they settle
0: yeah. Interesting. So they do that. Uh, they're growing. as. I mean, I don't know, to me, quarter size to hand size in a year sounds pretty fast, but um, I, I don't know why it sounds fast to me. It just sounds fast to me.
1: We were surprised by how fast that was. Yep.
0: Yeah. It's probably those hand-sized ones that I've seen like one or two a year over the past few years, you know, happen happened to find one. And I guess if there were that many on the beach there, that suggests at least the potential to recover quickly if they don't continue to succumb to the the wasting, I guess would be the, the trick.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We think, um, you know, the story is that they're, they're recovering, starting to show signs of recovery because there's lots of little individuals, but they're pretty sparse or at least like patchy. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like Sitka got a wave. And then Juneau area, I guess, it must've gotten a wave a few years ago because they've got some big ones now, but you know, other places are still, there's still none. As you go further and further South, the frequency of those waves of little guys is decreasing. So the most southerly group that I know about is um, around Whidbey Island in Seattle. And outside of that southward of that, we're getting, you know, reports of, I saw one. I saw one last year, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And so it's it's really, really sparse as soon as you get out into the outer coast of Washington, Oregon, California.
0: I, I suppose in trying to understand the prospects for recovery, one of the big important things would be, are there refugia, where they basically, through whatever combinations of conditions and I don't know, you know, what things, and I'm not sure. I guess what the current status, the current understanding is about what um, makes them most susceptible to this sea star wasting disease. Um, but if there are refugia, then you know, providing source populations that makes a big difference, uh, as opposed to to not. If if there aren't any of those anywhere near, then presumably it's a lot longer road to recovery if it ever recovers. Yeah, so I think
1: the, um, you know, when we were trying to figure out their status, we gathered as much data as we could, but it is pretty hard to sample the entirety of like the British Columbian and Alaskan coastlines. But what we did find was there's a few places, especially in like the fjord lands of British Columbia that seemed to escape the disease. So they they still had big ones um, in, you know, 2017. So essentially everywhere got hit hard by the disease and their populations declined by, you know, 90-ish or more percent. But there are pockets, and we think maybe up in fjords where maybe the water doesn't mix as much, and so the disease maybe didn't get there, that they, you know, held on and there's still like a big are a decent size to dense population of adults. And we think those ones might be the ones that are making all the babies that have landed in various places. Mm.
0: And is there, I remember being a mystery for some time and, and I heard it various times. It sounded like they might be settling on one thing or another as terms of the cause, but has that been resolved to folks' satisfaction yet? Or is that still kind of up in the air a little bit?
1: Oh, it's a hot topic. Um, (laughs) uh, The original papers and uh, investigations pointed to a virus. And so that was the working hypothesis for a while. Um, And then the virus that they had identified turned out not to be the virus. And so a bunch of follow-up studies were done. and, And I think it was really starting to get to where, like, maybe it's multiple viruses. Maybe it's a virus plus some environmental thing, maybe it's just environment. And so there were just hypotheses being thrown around all over the place. So right now, there's really no definitive answer. But I can say that um, some folks that I collaborate with are working on the virus problem yet again, and trying to redo a lot of those original studies with more detail. And they're they're showing promising signs, and I won't say any more than that. But
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I
1: think it's probably at least a pathogen.
0: Yeah. Well, it is, it's an interesting puzzle because obviously these things, y- you see them out of the water, maybe at the lowest tides of the year, but otherwise they're pretty much underwater all the time. A place we don't function super well in, live a very different sort of lifestyle life plan than than anything we are familiar with so much and so studying them seems like it's a a bit of a challenge tracking them in that planktonic stage i guess maybe even not possible at this point Uh, i guess you could kind of make some guesses based on currents and stuff but yeah what are the kind of tools that you try and bring to studying an animal that is so different than and and in a very different sort of space and, and approach than anything that we sort of can easily uh, do.
1: Yeah. I mean, so you really can't track the larvae. Um, You can only essentially like visit places repeatedly and see how the population changes. And because they're all underwater, that often requires lots of scuba diving. So we partner, I think some of the best ways to study this are people who you know, dive the same sites over and over and over again and pay attention to how many of each species are out there. So, you know, like the University of Alaska Fairbanks has some really great like Gulf Watch Alaska programs and things like that. There's a bunch of citizen science or community science diving uh, programs around and they're especially in the Seattle Puget Sound area where folks, you know, who are recreational divers can go out, dive, and then log what they see on these like online platforms. And some of those are called Reef Check and Reef. And then I think um, Ocean Wise, which is part of the Vancouver Aquarium also has some stuff like that.
0: Nice, yeah. I know on iNaturalist there's, um, there's a project for sea star wasting, tracking, basically any starfish that gets posted gets added to that project. And I think there are folks monitoring there.
1: Yeah, yeah. We used all those data in the um, global assessment that we did. And so iNaturalist is a super useful tool, especially for something where we're trying to see, like, where has it disappeared from and where is it coming back to? It's a really useful tool for that.
0: Yeah, there was somebody on iNaturalist uh, that posted on iNaturalist from Juno. Uh, of diving, and it seemed like they maybe didn't even—I don't know if they didn't get sea star wasting or what—but it seemed like they had plenty of, uh, at least in a couple of locations around Juno, plenty of uh, uh, adult-looking, you know, the larger ones. Uh, it, it—I believe those were subtitle, you know, dive locations, and so maybe that's an example of kind of being at the upper end of a fjord sort of thing as well. Juno's is pretty far up on the inside waters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we have, I can't remember exactly in our data set, but there was a decline in Juno, so they didn't just get skipped. But um, it seemed like maybe it didn't wasn't hit as hard, and there were still, you know, there's there were survivors that have gotten bigger, and it seems like also babies have landed in, in Juno in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, so it's an interesting uh, prospect. Like one of the changes, I mean, you, you mentioned one of the questions that that you have and are working on are what changes in the ecosystem are occurring. I basically, I guess it's a way of of having a natural experiment, so to speak, about the role of these uh, animals in the ecosystem. Not that you requested <laughs> to to be able to clean the slate this way, but but there is this this opportunity. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I'm not been the only one that's noticed around here, uh, since that decline happened, was that abalone started showing up more and you know could be that that's a coincidental correlation uh, could be that that in a low population state the abalone are basically suppressed by these these uh, sunflower stars they able to keep them uh from from growing in population uh, i don't know in the past there were both of them uh so so it's it's not entirely clear what might have happened but just an interesting kind of correlation but i imagine you know this this the suspicion is, from the sounds of it, that there are a whole cascade of effects that these uh, the presence or absence of these starfish might have on, uh, especially a, a seaweed kelp-based uh, ecosystem.
1: Yeah. So like you said, this is a really good opportunity to study the role of these sea stars in these ecosystems because they were there and then they're gone. And then now, hopefully they'll come back. And so we can look at the switches that happen in response to those, you know, phases of time. And so I think I'll start that kind of little thread with California. Sea star wasting disease hit California in 2013, shortly followed by the blob, which was this warm water event. Um, in 1516. So the blob directly killed the kelp. And then the baby kelp as they tried to go back were met with a, you know, horde of sea urchins that had increased drastically without that top predator. And there may have also been some sea urchin increases, you know, independently, but for whatever reason, like the combo of no sea stars to eat the urchins, lots of extra urchins plus the blob killing kelp really made for a very bad situation for those kelp forests and they lost I think like 90 95 percent of their kelps in about 2016 and it's just this year they're starting to show minor signs of recovery. so that's huge and so and then so that happened the, the pretty quickly. And then we've in Oregon, where I live, um, in the last two or three years, we've started to see these collapses. And now we've got urchin barons everywhere, which is a state where there's just urchins all over the seafloor. That brings me back to, to Sitka. And that's why I have been doing research up there because Sitka is a really interesting test case for all of these relationships, because it has kind of Um, the best of both worlds. It has had this um, decline in sea stars, but we also have recovery of the sea stars um, starting to happen in some places. And in the time between when the sea stars went away, what we've been seeing is, um, and this is not me, this is the Santa Cruz lab met led by Christy Croker. She's been working in Sitka for years and years. And what they saw was some places in the Sound were switching to Urchin Barrens and some places weren't. And we're now trying to, A, you know, assess why some places switched to Urchin Barrens. And then, B, as these sea stars come back, try to see if they flip back to kelp forests. And so Sitkas a really great testing, ground because we have sea stars, but they're not, super abundant everywhere and so we can kind of um we're actually proposing to do some moving some moving around so we'd say like take this reef and add a bunch take this reef and take those the few that are there away and leave that reef alone and just kind of compare those and see what the kelp forest system does in response to those three different situations
0: well it sounds sounds like some interesting projects that I imagine will take a, a few seasons to to oh, yeah. <laughs> settle through. And I guess I'm curious, you know, we often hear about the the keystone species of sea otter and Sitka Sound has a healthy sea otter population. I don't know what the sea otter populations are like if there are any in Oregon. Uh, I th- I think there are some in California. I don't know how many. So it's it's interesting to me that in some ways it seems like the sea otters as i've understood it and these these um sunflower stars are although i hadn't until recently hadn't really heard about the sunflower stars in this role it seems like they're they're playing kind of overlapping uh roles as this kind of keystone predator of of the um herbivores the kelpivores i guess
1: yeah the kelpivores that is um exactly right and so just to back up about the collapses, the collapses in Northern California and the collapse of kelp forest in Oregon, both occurred in places where there are no sea otters. So the sea otters that are in California are mostly down on the Big Sur coastline. And that's like South of San Francisco. And they haven't had the same sorts of collapses as the Northern half of California, where there aren't otters and in Oregon where there aren't otters. And so that sort of indicates that maybe sea otters and sea stars together are either, redundant, so they could both play that top role, or that um, at at the very least when you have neither, then you have an issue. Um, And that is totally why we're coming to Sitka to to ask this question, um, ecological question as well, because Sitka has an interesting setup where there are otters, but the otters are concentrated in certain places and not others. and So it's from what I hear, and I haven't actually seen any yet. Um, and they're further away from town and that may be due to, to the hunting, but who knows. Um, and so we've got a setup where we have some places with otters, some places without otters. And it seems like the places that don't have otters and now also don't have sea stars were the ones that switched to urchin barons, And the places where the sea stars died, but the otters are still there are still kelp forests. And so we're trying to do exactly what you're saying is untangle the like paired roles of the sea otter and the sea star and figure out if you need one or both. Um, and then what happens when you have neither? And how does that <clears throat> affect all the, the critters that live in that, in that kelp forest? And how does that change it to an urchin baron if you have neither?
0: Yeah, it seems like an interesting set of questions. And of course, in Sitka, I don't, it was the early 90s, I think, when the sea otters started moving back into Sitka Sound. They had previously been introduced on West Chichikov Island, but didn't make it into the sound proper until sometime in the 90s and then did very well, have done very well here. Of course, at that time, you know, while the sea otters were not around there were plenty of sunflower stars around so right (laughs) we never really had without both of them i wonder if other places in southeast alaska that don't have otters there you know could also serve as i mean obviously there's other things going on as well inside versus outside waters and and those sorts of things but uh serve as some um sort of um i don't know if control is quite the right group alternative uh spots to to check and monitor relatively speaking um for some of these questions
1: i know that that question is being um investigated and so i haven't done that study but i know that there's some folks that work up in glacier bay and that they've been investigating that sort of like what are the patterns and all this set of timelines and it's it's i think there's a paper that actually just came out on it and i'll have to uh, maybe send send a link or something, but it's by Christy Kroker and they're investigating the like role, the timeline, and how the ecosystems have changed with otter recovery and sea star decline.
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to share a link to that when I post the show on my website. If you can send me that, I'll I'll post it there. Um, cool. And yeah. So more generally, I mean you my My understanding is you you study kind of these marine community dynamics and it's um i mean community dynamics of of their very nature are complicated, and marine ones i don 't know if they're more complicated than land ones it just seems that they're less accessible <laughs> uh and uh maybe more complicated as well i'm not i'm not sure different certainly different things going on there so it it uh yes it fascinated me just kind of these questions because it's this you know it's so easy to look at the surface of the water and say well there's not a lot going on there but you know even just a little bit of snorkeling uh, or or poking around at low tide is is uh, a little bit gives you a little bit of that and the tide pools but if you get out snorkeling or diving even more so you know it starts to open up this this window of like oh there's a lot going on down there that is just sort of out of sight out of mind for many of us and and I guess so part of what you've been doing is is kind of trying to peel back that obscurity a little bit and understand kind of what's going on.
1: Yeah, and I think one piece of the puzzle that I'm really interested in is not just, you know, are there how many urchins does a sea star eat or how many urchins does an otter eat? Urchins can can also change their behavior and Animals out there, you know, they're not just sitting there waiting to get eaten, right? <laughs> they have behaviors. They 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 run from their predators. They hide from their predators, and it really changes how important they are <clears throat> as uh, grazers on kelp, kelpivores, uh, for depending on what they're going to do. And so, one thing that we're really really interested in right now. It's not just asking, oh, do sea stars, do these Pycnopodia sea stars eat urchins, but do they scare them? And does that change, say, say if you've got a sea star sliming up a reef as it crawls around on its millions of suction cups? Okay, thousands of suction cups. Um, does that you know have an effect on you know all the sea urchins in? the whole reef and do they all go hide for the next two days or do they go hide for the next two weeks or do they hide for 15 minutes and does that change how much kelp they eat so if you've got a bunch of sea urchins that are constantly scared and hiding in cracks they might have a really different effect even if the same, if there's the same number of them they might have a really different effect on the kelp then urchins who are out there like, I love this place. I own this joint. You're just mowing down kelp forests like lawnmowers, you know?
0: Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that, but as you're saying is it, it makes sense. Yeah. The behavior could be it, 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 differences in behavior could have as much effect as presence and absence in some respects. Um, and that I remember at the aquarium at but it's now the science center when it was uh, still Sheldon Jackson, uh, one of the faculty member who actually uh, really was instrumental in getting the aquarium going, who it's named after now at Molly Algren, one of her favorite demonstrations was to move uh, a sea star, a, a sunflower star near different other stars. You know, and there's this whole cascade of movement or, or watching the uh, it's hard to call a, a abalone is galloping, but, But (laughs) yeah, it was kind of like, it's a little weird to think about galloping with without any legs, but somehow they they gave every impression of galloping. Uh, And so these these kind of uh, radical movements and, and it was even I mean, there was I guess it was chemosensing in the water sensing of chemicals or something like maybe equivalent to our sense of smell, perhaps, uh, except for for these water water creatures, because it didn't seem to require touch always, although touch elicited a strong response at times as well. but yeah this whole behavioral thing where you know when i found a, a a big red sea urchin like i don't maybe they can move their their spines enough to get but it seemed like even the test was big enough the shell was big enough that it couldn't get out of these rocks that it just grew in there and presumably had enough food that it could survive in there but Um, But it wasn't out and grazing. So that very much limits its ability to. And I guess part of the issue with kelp is that they can cut off the base and then the whole kelp is gone. It's not like they're climbing up and eating the growing, uh, just the the edges of it. But um, so all of these kind of behavioral things that could make a big difference, you know, the sea urchins are still there, but maybe, yeah, not impacting the forest structure in the same way.
1: Yeah, yeah. You can have. If you have um, sea urchins, you know, hiding in cracks and catching the algae and kelp that, you know, drift past them with their spine, they're really not going to have much of an effect on that ecosystem. But if you have the same number of sea urchins roaming and eating the holdfasts, which is what like the base of the kelp is called, um, they can have a huge effect. And it's pretty clear that whether they chemo sense that the sea stars are gone and get brave or they um, you know haven't had anyone attack them for a while and so then they become brave or they just start getting hungry because there's not as much kelp around and they venture um, either any one of those things can change um, their behavior from like a sedentary lifestyle of just, catching whatever comes by to like an active foraging lifestyle and that has a huge effect especially on um baby kelp because kelp um are actually an annual plant which is is kind of one of the main it's a it's a main piece of information to know if you're thinking about how they work right so if you've got this plant that grows a ton and gets really big, but then dies back every year and grows again from um, a spore, then that's a very different... It's very much... It's more vulnerable to um, having lots of herbivores around than, say, um, a tree, right? It's it's not a tree. It's a, it's a plant that... Like, it's like a tomato that, that grows back every year, but becomes the size of a tree every year. <laughs> and so it really needs... A like good, safe, uh, yeah, just like a. It needs a, a phase in its life where it can grow from a t- tiny microscopic thing to a, at least something big enough to fend off the mouths. Um, and if if that if there are just tons and tons of sea urchins around, that they just scarf that baby phase, and the kelp don't have a chance.
0: Right. Yeah so many interesting questions. I spoke with somebody some time back who did, uh, did a project looking at the urchin barrens, the Aleutians. And one of the things that he told me that was interesting to me is that the, the sea urchins can go a long time with, like when they create a barrens for themselves, <laughs> essentially they can hold up and, and kind of just go into this, this you know, they'll shrink themselves really, uh, and, and be able to go into this really low energy state, just waiting.
1: Yeah. They, um, sea urchins can go months to years without eating and it's really impressive. They'll they'll also eat pretty much anything. They'll eat like those, that pink crust algae that grows on the rocks. They'll eat that. Um, they'll eat all sorts of other small algae that grows, Um, and so, and they'll eat, they'll eat dead, dead anything. (laughs) So they can, they're pretty scrappy and, um, they can definitely handle like times of famine and, and then be ready to pounce when, when something good grows or comes along, which like you said, it kind of, it kind of gets you in a, in a pickle and you have some, have to have something to break out of that pickle and, I think, and a lot of folks think that predators are the key to getting out of those pickles. And what's interesting is uh, I've got some folks who study sea otters saying that the sea otters are, are pretty smart, right? Like they're they're very clever little animals, and they if um, they're in an urchin barren with what what we fondly call zombie urchins that are just no there's no nutrients inside of them they're just like a skeleton with a sack of guts they'll pick them up and maybe try one or two but they'll be like oh all the urchins here are 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 junk they're not worth it my effort and they'll just go somewhere else and so that as much as they those otters can be really important keystone predators they're kind of too smart for sometimes what we want them to do (laughs) And um, they'll just kind of take off and go somewhere else where the urchins are, are a little bit more full of, of food and nutrients. And so you can have a barren and an otter may be there, but um, it might not be worth the otter's time to go get those urchins. And um, we've done some of my collaborators have done some studies recently where they asked whether the sea stars will eat empty urchins and they will. And like I said before, they also scare urchins, whether they're full of gonads or not. And so, we think that maybe sea stars might be an important piece of breaking that that urchin barren cycle.
0: Yeah, it seems like I mean the the sea stars are there, they're there, right? They're they're in place, whereas the otters are coming and going, presumably, especially if you get very deep, and interesting that they would they would still eat those and i suppose so you mentioned that as part of a project here you're you're looking at the possibility at least the potential for for doing a project here where you move some of these sun stars around i guess as a as a sort of mitigation factor i suppose again it depends on uh the the disease but would there be the potential for reintroducing some of these sunflower stars into places that are further away from from the sort of source refugio populations
1: well that's what we're looking into for oregon i don't think that's going to be on the table for sitka just because there are sea stars already out there at least they're not super dense but they're around um So we think that those populations are at least on their way to recovery. But down in Oregon, we've got, you know, a handful of stars seen in the last six years. And so um, we're hoping that um, the powers that be will start to let us actually put them back out, um, reintroduce them. And um, there's, there are folks at Friday Harbor Labs, which is part of the University of Washington. The University of Washington uh, is working on captively rearing these guys in the lab with the intent of hopefully putting them out um, either in Washington or even out in Oregon if uh, we can get the permits.
0: <laughs> nice. The Well, I mean, it'd be interesting to see. And I suppose... With captive rearing, I I don't know how hard it is to captively rear them, but I I would wonder if it would be possible to, through selective processes, uh, basically breed ones that are more resistant to the the whatever it is that's causing the wasting.
1: That's an idea. Um, And certainly there's enough genetic variability in, uh, say, like a brood stock, because they make millions and millions of babies that, if we say challenge them with disease and like only took the survivors, that's a feasible strategy. Um, I don't think we're there yet. We need, need to have a better and more robust captive rearing program before we could start infecting them on purpose. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's very much on the table and, um, and certainly would be a good a good strategy to ensure the success of the translocation program. We certainly would hate to spend all this time captively rearing these guys and putting them out and only to have them die. Yeah. Um, So I I imagine if if we do do translocations, we'll probably do a bunch of trial runs, right? Where we put out a small number and track them and see if they are become infected and things like that before we go the whole shebang. I also think uh, instead of captively rearing and um, reintroducing them, that moving them around, um, the ones that are already out there and concentrating them is another really viable uh, option because the ones that are out there now, we know they've survived it. And so they're probably tough. And say, let's say, you know, one issue we're worried about right now is if they're super sparse and far apart, but they're broadcast spawners that need to be within like a meter of each other to reproduce. And they're effectively not reproducing if they're not that many of them, if they're not that dense. In places where we have them, but they're not concentrated, we could, you know, say artificially concentrate them in a given cove or reef and and put them in together so that they could reproduce as a group and maybe bonus put them in a urchin barren and go eat all the urchins in the meantime <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's my yeah. intent that's what i want to do <laughs>
0: i see well it's it's interesting that brings up the question for me that i've i wondered about some of the other starfishes uh and and same question for these which is i mean and and these will go pretty deep in the water as as you described earlier although they're not very common um beyond a certain depth how far are these like when they're on a beach are they there for life or are do do you get i mean i i don't know how anybody would even know the answer to this question at this point but it, it is more kind of just like i wonder if there's you know sort of the uh the Bilbo Baggins of the uh, of the uh, <laughs> sunflower star world that goes on an adventure to some far off place, or, or if they pretty much are, are in their you know square, however many bits of, of uh, ocean bottom that they inhabit, and they don't move beyond that.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. Um, so two things: like first, they 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 are very capable. Of moving around. So unlike some other sea stars, like, um, ochre stars, they can totally handle sand. They like the sand. They, they book it across the sand, no problem. So, um, I don't think you can assume that if you put them in one, you know, rocky reef that they'll stay on that rocky reef. Um, unlike say, a, an ochre star that doesn't like to, leave the rocks and so if they're on an isolated patch of rocks they're stuck. So I think they can they can move around a lot. That said, you know, they don't have navigational skills. <laughs> they're they're more of like bumblers. And so I don't think there's any like intent uh directional migration. They're probably just kind of following their noses or their, their two feet, which is what they, they sniff with. So uh, I think they could probably travel, you know, kilometers in their lifetime. Um, and if they live 50 years, maybe more than kilometers. But I don't think that they're, like, making any sort of concerted movements from one place to another.
0: I mean, that makes sense. It, it is kind of uh, f- fun to to, to wonder. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it sounds like they can if if they... Had a reason to, I suppose, if, you know, food changed or, or something happened and, and needed to move that that they could they could do so and and end up going going pretty far.
1: Yeah, I do think, though, if we're talking about, re, uh, you know, expanding the population's range, depending on animals moving from one place to another as adults is not a good plan. Um, <laughs> we, we need them to be reproducing and for the larvae to be moving.
0: And I suppose, I suppose the, the currents and as, as plankton basically they're at the, at the mercy of the currents. So that could influence, you know, how rapidly some places are repopulated versus others or recolonized by these, by these uh, young ones versus other places.
1: Yeah. I mean, currents are, are certainly moving them and they are fairly passive. They probably ride the currents quite a bit. They do have some capabilities, um, And this is just becoming more appreciated in a marine larvae in general in that they can kind of ride the currents purposefully to either get further or closer to shore. So we think that they can like follow um, the wind patterns and the like daily changes in wind pattern that changes like surface and bottom currents to, you know, say ride out. In the early parts of their life stage they go out and eat plankton and then when they're ready to ride the currents back in so they're not completely inept and they don't just like all get swept off and die in the middle of the ocean all the time i'm sure that happens a lot too so we think we think they are somewhat capable of getting themselves back to shore at least but definitely you know where they land on the shore is perhaps a a big gamble And they're probably traveling, you know, many, many multiple kilometers, mostly. Sometimes they might get into a pocket of current that takes them 100. And we really don't have good estimations for how that works. I mean, people are working on it, for sure, because it's a big black box. Knowing where they're going to end up is a big question. And and I like to um, think about it. In, if you ever like watch, and this is kind of an outdated reference, but like a cigarette in a still room where the smoke swirls and curls around, that's kind of what larvae do in the ocean. And so you don't have like just a cloud of larvae coming from the source population and spreading evenly. You have swirly turbulence. And so you can end up with like a big, Puff of larvae coming in to one place, very far away, and missing everything in between. It's what we call like chaotic or unpredictable process.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of visualize that a little bit. You know, I've seen some of the satellite imagery of swirls and things and eddies, and and the the, that you can see the different colors of the ocean with different kinds of plankton blooms. And so, I imagine that these are traveling in similar sorts of current and eddies and uh the these sorts of things and uh it does it does make me wonder you know a certain amount of randomness but maybe a certain amount of adaptive intentionality maybe we'll we'll call it where they are able to to sort of as you say move in and out um to increase the chances of finding a place perhaps that is suitable for them to fall out um when that time is right the has there been any work done on kind of population structure genetically to see how much mixing of the population there is? And and I guess that would potentially give some sense of how, how widely they are spreading, um, or, or intermixing population wise, genetically speaking.
1: More has been done on the ochre star. There are some folks right now working on the population genetic structure of sunflower sea stars, but they don't have their results yet. Um, And, but the ochre star populations seem to be pretty mixed, both before and after the disease, but there has been genetic shifts in the ochre star populations as a whole, at least in some places. And so uh, it seems like there's been a genetic shift after wasting because of that bottleneck. Um, So presumably they're tougher now than they were, and it's selected for tougher individuals. But there's not tons of structure in the populations. And I think that's probably still true after disease.
0: Interesting. Well, yeah. And you mentioned earlier, I guess, uh, that's one last question here before we, we wrapped up. We were, You were talking about kelp forests and it, it just brought up to mind, you know, we talk about forests on the land and in and Southeast Alaska and, and elsewhere, you know, in our temperate rainforest, we talk about old growth forest and, And it made me wonder, just thinking about the analogy of, you know, kelp is a much less long-lived species, as you were saying, many of them are are annuals, basically. Um, But structure-wise, maybe there's a difference between old growth and young growth. I remember seeing when they put in the new breakwater, it was a couple of years, like there was a cycle of... Of kind of colonization of different color algae. And then it was, you know, two or three years before it looked like the rest of the breakwater, you know, just from a distance superficial color wise. So I'm, I'm curious if you have any sense about sort of um, community structure and age of the community kinds of things. Are there, is there equivalent of, of kind of old growth structure in kelp forests, or is it, is it something that, that just operates in a very different way and isn't really analogous at all?
1: Hmm, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever got that question. Um, well, so, like I said, like I said, kelp was an annual. So the kelp itself, which is the, you know, the big, long, tree-like algae, they don't operate the same way, but all the stuff that lives under the kelp, so all the red algae, uh, seagrass, and, and these types of things are not annuals. Diving in Sitka... This summer, I can tell you that the places with urchin barrens were not only devoid of kelp, but they were—they had nothing else. There was almost no algae on the ground. I think that there's very likely a uh, analogous old growth algae forest uh, when you've got an established, long-term, you know, undisturbed area, and and not just algae. There's all sorts of sponges and tunicates and all sorts of other colonizing long-lived animals that live on the bottom that um, are part of the community and make it up. And when you have an urchin bear and those go too. And so I think that there is, that's a spot on sort of question. In that, um, um, we definitely quantify a lot of that, but we don't kind of categorize them as old growth, young growth, like uh, foresters do.
0: Yeah, I just, I imagine there could be, you know, again, potentially a sort of um, dynamic equilibrium where, where, you know, there's in old growth, it's the disturbance of a tree getting old and, or, or infected by fungus and dropping and creating an opening. So you have this, this patchy sort of thing. That's part of what gives old growth forest its, its quality structure. And so, yeah, as, as you say, the, the kelp itself isn't really that old, but the structure of the community you know, it may take some. I could imagine that it could take some time to develop a certain type of structure, and that you know, maybe, maybe in your your later years, you'll have spent enough time, you know, diving on these forests. You go first visit. Oh, this one's a young one, or a, an old one. This one's been here a long time.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's more on that because I haven't, I haven't really thought about that question in deep ways. But I, I'm sure someone else could answer better than me. But I, I like that. I like that concept. Maybe we'll, we'll try and see if it operates the same way as a forest.
0: Nice. Well, I appreciate your time. Anything you want to say here as we wrap up?
1: Yeah. I mean, so if you see sea stars, put them in iNaturalist. Um, if you want to dive uh, on those reefs, there are um, groups like Reef and Reef Check that can help train people on how to like quantify the animals and fish that they see and report it on different um, different on like an online platform um and then the last thing is you know sea stars these as as we lovingly call them rag mops love crab traps and so if you get one in your crab trap go ahead and put it on an albatross because that's fun um and you know just disentangle it gently and toss it back Um, they can handle losing an arm or two um but you know try not to mangle it too badly even though it's a big slimy and we'd love it to be going back to the, the kelp forest so it can eat sea urchins and grow. The kelp can grow, and then the baby rockfish can land in the kelp and grow up and live in the kelp, and then you can fish them later.
0: Nice. Well, thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Sarah Gravam. She's a postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University studying the impacts of sea star wasting disease and the decline in the apex predators, that starfish are along the Pacific coast. I want to thank for joining me from her home in Oregon to speak with me. And thank you for joining me here this week on the Sitka Nature Show. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.